Last week we talked and I shared with you a sort of a, a hook or a, a, a motto to be thinking about to know Christ and to make Him known, rather famous, um, at least among uh, evangelical Episcopal circles, um, to know Christ and to make Him known. And I said to you last week that, that we have to continually be seeking to know Christ ourselves as we and before we go forward to make him known to other people. Today I want to continue that, except I want to shift a little bit and, and consider uh, another aspect of this knowing, uh, our being known by God. Now to do it, I want to take a look at the psalm today. And I know that it's kind of irregular for me to preach from the psalm. Usually we don't, we don't preach the psalm, although occasionally we do. Jody reminded me that the very first sermon I ever preached at St. Michael's was actually uh, a psalm. So I guess it has precedent. But I want to look with you for a while. See, the reality is I've preached this gospel to you countless times. <laughs> You know this gospel. You know Jesus coming and, and reminding uh, us that, that, that he is coming to, to Galilee. And you, you know about the call of the first disciples and the call to be fishers of men. And, and none of that is negated. As a matter of fact, that is so vitally important to us that we understand uh, what it means to be fishers of men. But, so in, in a way, I want to I preach about that passage, the gospel passage. But I want to do it in the back door way. I want to I look at it with you from the, the perspective of the psalm. And so I'm going to grab my prayer book. Here's one right here. And uh, if you've got a red prayer book in front of you, I just invite you to open it up. Because while we did a beautiful job of singing that psalm earlier, we didn't quite get through the whole psalm. And you'll soon see why when you start looking at verses 19 and forward. I believe it's found on page 454 in the the Book of Common Prayer. Somebody get there and tell me if I'm right. Am I right? Nope, I'm not right. 454. Okay, I am right. All right. Awesome. So let's, let's just consider for a few moments. See, David is not talking about knowing God or making God known, but rather what captivates David's heart and thoughts is the very fact that God knows him. And so I want to think about that in view of the call for us to make Christ known, to be, in fact, as Jesus says, these fishers of men. The psalm breaks down beautifully just the way that, that David and the music team broke it up. The first five verses is David recognizing and thinking through the fact that, that he, he can't hardly fathom the fact that God has such complete knowledge of him. Lord, you've searched me out. You know me from my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. Oftentimes in a praise psalm that's declarative, which is what this is, the psalmist tells you what the psalm is about by the very first sentence. Search me out and know me. It's about being known by God. And David is overwhelmed. He's brought to worship because he recognizes that God knows him. Isn't that the very thing that we all want? To have a human relationship where we can be so, so known by that person and yet not re rejected? Our greatest fear is that if people really knew the things I think and the things I do and the things, places I've been and where I want to go, that they would reject us. And yet, 
here is David who recognizes that God knows us. He knows the very thoughts of our minds. He knows where we've been. He knows where we're going. And yet, he doesn't reject us, but in fact loves us, which is why David is brought to praise and worship as he contemplates this. You examine my path and my place of rest, verse 2, and are acquainted with my ways. Indeed, there are not a, it's not a word on my tongue, but that you know it all together. You have enclosed me from behind and before, and you've laid your hand upon me. For such knowledge, verse 5, is too wonderful for me, so excellent I cannot attain to it. Now, it, it, it may be that... that that David's a little intimidated by this thing. I don't know if you've ever contemplated the fact that, that God knows the thoughts of your mind. He doesn't reject you, but he knows your thoughts. He, he does know where you've been and, and what you've been doing and where you're going. Just as a kind of a very, very superficial way of saying this, but this is just the way the Lord works. I, I was back and forth, poor David, back and forth to him about what I was going to preach this week, and I couldn't get away from Psalm 139. I really wanted to preach it. And, and so I, I sort of set my mind, told David, okay, this is where we're going, and, and kind of put the sermon together. I got up this morning to do my daily devotion. I'm behind in my one-year Bible. I'm on December 20th. You know where I'm going with this, right? December 20th, I go, and I'm not keeping up with where my readings are, and I look at the readings, and guess what the psalm appointed for today for me to read was? Psalm 139. The Lord knew that I would be that many days behind and he knew that I would be contemplating what to preach and he knew that he wanted me to preach on 139 or at least I think that I'm taking that to be a sign and, and, and he laid that psalm in there just to be a little bit, hey Alex, I know you. I, I'm with you. I'm here. I know your thoughts. I know your anxious thoughts about what to preach. Here, here's a little breadcrumb to remind you. Isn't that cool? I'll, I'll show you the Bible. It's got it right there marked in. It's right there. God knows us. David is overwhelmed. He can't hardly fathom the fact that God knows him so well. You know me, Lord, and yet you don't reject me. And it causes David to praise. Well, the second section picks up with verse 6. David now recognizes that in this piece, he declares that God, he cannot escape from God's gaze. And again, that might not be that great. If you were a kid, maybe your mom and dad said, look, I'm not going to be with you, but Jesus knows, right? <laughs> God is watching you. Be good. Maybe that worked for you. Maybe it didn't. It worked for me, but I had a completely, I had a really godly mom. She just had a way of saying it that that caused me, but, but for whatever it is, but here's David saying, I cannot escape from your gaze. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I climb to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you are there. And don't get caught up theologically here. David's not, he's not suggesting that he can somehow go to heaven or that he can go to the, to the underworld, the, the, the netherworld. What David is saying is, he's using hyperbole. He's saying, there is nowhere, even heaven or hell, I cannot escape you, God. Now, perhaps he's thinking about Jonah in the next line because he, he, he goes on to say um, that, you know, if I, if I climb, um, if I take wings in the morning or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand shall uphold me. If I say to the darkness, if, if surely the darkness should cover me, then and shall my night be turned to day. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is not clear to you. And 
you know the story of, of Jonah, he, he flees from God's calling. He goes to Nineveh. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh and proclaim repentance, the very word that Jesus is preaching and the words on Jesus' mouth in the gospel. And he goes and gets on a boat and goes the opposite direction. And he, he gets, you know, thrown out in the storm because God is angry with him for running and he's swallowed by a fish. And what does he find in the belly of this giant fish? God. <laughs> he can't escape God. Even, even in the belly of this, of this giant fish, he cannot escape God. God is everywhere. And so David is, is overwhelmed with this idea that he cannot escape his gaze, that, that God's hand is always on him. You know, there's this sense in which sometimes I think this is, this is a powerful word for people to hear because there's a sense in which sometimes we feel like nobody understands where I am. Nobody knows where I am and what I've going through and the pain of my life and the suffering and the, the hurt and the heartache and where I've been. And I don't know, even, even as your pastor, I, I don't really know all the things that are going on in your life and the, the secret pains and the hurts that you struggle with. But you're never beyond the gaze of God. You're, you're, you're never beyond Him. Wherever you've been, whatever you're struggling with, his eye is always on you. There's another place in Scripture, and Paul quotes this, we are the apple of his eye, and, and he, he has his eye on us. And again, this is not causing David to fear or to resent, but rather he is, he is comforted and brought to praise and worship because God's eye is upon him. There is somebody that you may be called to to be a, a fisher of men to, that needs to hear that, that God's eye is on you no matter where you're at. David, again, is brought to worship as he, as he contemplates this, as he, as he recognizes this. God is, knows his thoughts. God knows him. He knows he, he's always seeing him. He's always before his eye. And then lastly, David begins to contemplate that because God is his creator, God knows his beginning and his end. He knows us chronologically. He knows us inside and out. When Jody gave birth to our son Jake, they had to do a C-section. And, uh, you know, so they had to cut her open and remove the baby. And if you know anything about that, and sorry to be graphic, but they have to take out some of the organs and stuff to make room to get to the, to the womb to actually bring out the child. And, and probably poor timing on my part, but as I was watching all this, because I was in the room, I said, Jody, I now know you inside and out. <laughs> I'd like to say I'm wiser and mature now, and I wouldn't have said the same thing, but I don't know, I probably would still. It was pretty, pretty, pretty cool. God, to me, the fact that I said it in the, in the emergency room, in the operating room, was, was really the bad part on, my, on, on my, my part. I probably should have waited at least to the next day to say it. But, but, but God knows us inside and out. He's formed us. Before we were even conceived, He knew us. He put us together. There is clearly some aspect of each of a, every human being I've ever known, there's something about their physical appearance they don't like. You know, you might think... Your nose, you have a great nose, but, but for people, it, it's, it's some aspect of them. But here's what, what David comes to the realization of, is that God has made us. He formed us. 
Every part of us, God, emotionally, mentally, physically, God created us to be just as we are. He knows us. He knows our beginnings. He formed us. He's our creator. He can, he, even before we were conceived, he, he, he knew the person that he wanted us to be, that he was creating us to be. And it causes David to, to praise God. And then, and then David says, and you know the number of my days. You know how many days I will dwell on the earth. As a priest, I get to go in and, and I get to um, bless little babies that are born and, and uh, watch them come into the world and be with their families. And there are times I've actually gone from that room down the hall and up to another floor and prayed with somebody who was days or hours before they, they departed the earth. The Lord, he knows those things. He, he knows the, the, the full stretch even before. And, and, and this again is just praiseworthy for David that, that God knows us chronologically. He knows us from within and he knows us from without. All of this leaves David completely in a place of, of sheer overwhelmed praise and worship. He is just caught up in an ecstasy of praise, if you will. And he just concludes, Lord, the, your thoughts for me are precious to me. And your thoughts for me are, are numberless. I am not an unknown creature in your vast universe, I am someone that you care and know. And David is, is brought to overwhelmed appreciation and praise and honor, declaring praise for God that he has done that. And he, he concludes that section by, by, just, by just this, how dear are your thoughts for me, O God? How great the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would be more to me than the number of the sand. When I awake, I am present with you. And it's almost like David gets kind of caught up in this, this idea. And, and again, I, I want us to think in terms of, of the people that we encounter. Do they, do they understand? Do they, do, have they heard you unpack for them? Or have you found ways to articulate the, the, the God who wants to know us? Emmanuel, God with us. Not just physically present to us, but, but with us, knowing us, that he cares about us, that, he, that he, he understands who we are, that he sees us even when other people are blinded. This is stuff that we need to be considering. But then what do you do if you open up Psalm, Psalm 139? What do you do when you get to verse 19? You see, David is, is he's just enamored with praising God for the fact that he is known by God. And then he wakes up, if you will, from his praise stupor and he recognizes that there is an enemy of God. And it's, it's like a whiplash, right? Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak unrighteously against you. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Indeed, I hate them with a perfect hatred. David, I don't know why you didn't use these verses this morning when we were singing the psalm. They have become my own enemies. David is overwhelmed with worship and praise for God and in 
view of that, he wakes up from that and he realizes that he doesn't love God or live with God in a bubble, but in a real world. And in the real world, there is an enemy. There is one who opposes God, who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And that one, by their invitation, uses human instruments to bring about that. You remember the first time you were old enough and, and cognizant of you become a Christian, you heard somebody uh, cursing and taking the name of the Lord in vain. And, and it was like a, a big, like a, like a, just like a hit in the stomach. I mean, there, there are people who, who don't even realize they're taking the name of the Lord in vain. They, they just, they, they use, that, you know, and, and I always kind of, you know, if, if I feel like that they're just, just completely oblivious, I'll say, are you praying? Because I pray to the same God that you're calling. See, I don't usually use that exact wording, and I'll try to find ways to acknowledge that, 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 that I'm a believer, I'm a follower of God, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and, and I don't appreciate it, but I'll try to find ways. But, but there are some people that when they say it, it's just visceral. It's just a, there's just a, a, an anger to it. I remember the first time I, I, I picked up the book, I think it's by um, Dawkins, uh, God is Not Good. And I realized that there are people who, who just hate God, speak ill, speak unrighteously of his name. And in and, 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 and his Dawkins case, he not only really didn't reject God because he didn't believe in God, he, 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 he hated the myth of God and what it, he saw it as doing to the world. And, you know, it's like, it's always interesting to me how angry people can be at a God that they don't believe in. But some of them are. And David's aware of it. And so in, in a weird way, I actually think it's great that we have these verses here. Because it, it reminds us that as we are, are overwhelmed with this sense that we're known by God, we're also aware that we live in a world where there is hostility towards God. Going one step further, Paul says in Romans 5, verse 10, that we were enemies of God. That as sinful, broken people in rebellion against God, we, in fact, were among those who were his enemies. And yet, Paul says, we've been made daughters and sons. We've been made those made righteous by Christ. Well, we'll get to the end of the psalm in a second, but I just want to just put a little jump here back to the gospel and, 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 and look at the, you know, look at the, the, the ark to the New Testament. Our Old Testament lesson, Amos, not to get into it too much, but Amos was a prophet of the Northern Kingdom. The Northern Kingdom was about to be hauled off by the Assyrians. Some of those people were lost, just sort of amalgamated with cultures and other people groups. We don't even know what happened to them. But, but here's Jesus who makes his base of operation, not in holy city Jerusalem, but way up in Gentile-infested Galilee. The Decapolis that I mentioned, I read past the gospel reading because I wanted you to... The Decapolis was a, was a Greek city, a, a, a state of cities, ten cities that were, were Gentile areas. Jesus ten, puts his base of operation right in the midst of us and, and Isaiah prophesies and Jesus lives out the prophecy that, that those, those two tribes that were a part of the northern kingdom, Naphtali and Zebulun, that they who've been in darkness have seen a great light. Christ comes 
to his enemies and proclaims peace. Charles Spurgeon, when he writes his commentary on Psalm 139, struggling in, in really tough-to-read language, struggling what to do with this, turns to that phrase and says, Lord, I perfectly hate those who hate you and have made them my own enemy. And Spurgeon says, what does it look like to perfectly hate Psychologically, we know that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference, right? To not care at all is the opposite of love. To hate has emotion. You, you, you care enough to hate this person, right? And Spurgeon concludes, that's not Spurgeon, by the way, that's just me, but Spurgeon says to hate perfectly is to hate the iniquity, but to love the creation. And isn't that the person of Jesus? From the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The same Jesus who, who comes to Bartholomew and says, here's, a, here's, a, here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. That's not in our gospel reading, but he's one of the other disciples that's called. And what, is, what does Bartholomew say? How did, Lord, how did you know me? You know, you know me. Jesus comes to Nicodemus and says, I know the struggle you have. I know what the obstacles for belief are for you. He knows Nicodemus. The next chapter, John chapter 4, the woman at the well, Jesus encounters. What does she say when she goes after having a conversation with Jesus? Come and meet a man who knew everything about me. The God that knows us, that David proclaims in Psalm 139 is the person of Jesus. And he comes, yes, hating the iniquity of his enemies, but loving his creatures and calling them to himself. Pop back just for a second, back to Psalm 139, the last two verses, verse 23 and 24. I, I want to point out that this is not a call to jihad or crusade. David does not, this is not about David's enemies. This is about those who are enemies to God, those who, who take God's name in vain. In other words, use it for their own purposes, manipulatively, without the purpose and sin. You don't have to curse in, in God's name to, to use his name in, in, a, in a malicious way. He's talking about those who disparage God's character and he says he makes them his enemies, but, but, but he never says, so I take up my sword and I slay them who are your enemies, God. Instead, look what happens. He turns it back to himself. And he says, verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Well, wait a minute. David said, I, you know me. You know me from inside and out and chronologically, and your gaze is always upon me, and you know all my thoughts. Why is, what is David meaning by this? He's not just saying search me and know me. He's saying, search me and know me, and then help me to know myself. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, examine my thoughts, and look well if there be any wickedness in me. 
The reality is, if we're honest, there are times where those who are the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ, are not our enemies. In fact, we have usefulness for them, right? Don't we? We compromise and sometimes even fail to proclaim Christ in the face of those who would be ugly to us or reject us or not know what to do if they heard that we know a God who loves us and knows us. David brings it back to himself and asks God to search his heart, to know the wickedness within him, and to lead him to the way of life everlasting. God knows us. He knows our secret life, our sins. He knows all the wicked ways that are still within us. And that is why Christ came and died upon the cross. To win the enemies of God back to him. To make us friends of God. To put eternity in our heart. The everlasting ways. Friends, as we, we move out in the season of Epiphany and we seek to, to, to share Christ, to know Christ and to make him known. Isn't it interesting that one of the things that David learns about God, how he knows God, is to know that God knows him. And so he knows us. And yet he doesn't reject us. He loves us. And he calls us to fall on our knees before him and to ask the Lord to search us and to continuing his, his saving work in us, his sanctifying work within us. This is what we need to be sharing. We need to be able to share 139, Psalm 139, with unbelieving world in, in whatever way possible. They may not sit down with you and read the whole psalm, but let them know what it says. There's a God who knows you and yet does not reject you. Calls you to lay down your weapons and to surrender at the foot of the cross. To be known by God is far more important than to know God, to be known by Him, and to trust Him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.